and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. Uh, it's a very exciting Monday in Philadelphia, and um, I just want to congratulate our beloved Philadelphia Eagles for the big win last night. We're all very, very excited. Um, we have a great show this afternoon. Before we get started, I just want to give out our website. If you're listening and interested in finding out who is in our lineup, you can go to womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And be sure to follow us on all our social media pages at Women to Watch. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Women to Watch. Uh, this afternoon, we're going to have our um, wonderful monthly contributor, Kristen Hillsley, joining us at the top of the show. And following Kristen, we have a very special guest with me in the studio this afternoon, uh, Kelly Hodge. And Kelly served as the 25th District attorney of Philadelphia and was the very first African-American woman uh, to do so here in Pennsylvania. So I'm very excited to have her with me. But we're going to start with Kristen. Uh, Kristen Hillsley, private wealth manager with Baird Financial and the Foley Hillsley Group is here to talk to us about setting financial resolutions for the new year that last. Kristen, welcome to the show. Hi, Sue. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I am doing pretty good. I don't think anybody's going to have a bad day today after that game <laughs> last night. I think you're right. I, w- I wore my green coat this afternoon and to celebrate uh, the big win. Yeah, I think everyone, you know, we kind of were hopeful, but I don't know that we were going to do it in such a big way. Oh, my goodness. It was. I thought my husband was going to, like, blow a gasket. He was so <laughs> excited, and I felt just so happy for him because he was – he just – I mean, and I love the Eagles, but I mean, he loves the Eagles. And so I was just, it was like watching the kids on Christmas. I mean, it was a really great time. I know. I think the grown men are that, yeah, they, they act like children. And it's, it's just exciting. It's wonderful when something positive like that happens and we can all be a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. So I understand you're going to talk to us today about um, resolutions for the new year. And I think, you know, we all do that. We all kind of think in our head how we're going to do things a little differently. And you have some great tips on how to actually follow through um, with our money matters. Well, thank you so much. Um, And yeah, I think one of the things that we struggle with is that, or at least I struggle with right now, is that there's so much noise right now. I mean, we just had a major tax overhaul that happened. Um, we have so much going on politically. There's just so much noise out there. And a lot of the noise can get in between you and your money and you and making really good decisions. And so one of the things that I think that's really important to talk about is just kind of getting back to basics. What are like the fundamental, really important things that we need to do to set resolutions that are simple enough that we can, we can be, you know, that we can um, 
make sure to accomplish them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the first, and, and they sound so simple, but it's kind of like saying, I want to lose 10 pounds. Well, diet and exercise might work, you know, but you actually have to do them to make it work. So one of the things I wanted to start off with is to say, like, how you, you really should try and pick specific ways to save more and to spend less. And that's your diet and exercise. So when you think about how to do this, number one, you always have to pay yourself first. It it sounds like a challenge, but and I know in certain instances it is, but no matter what the circumstance, you really should try and be putting away, and I'm going to say it, 10% of your income, whether that's going to build an emergency fund or whether that's going to your retirement account, because once you get that into your everyday, it's really not going to seem like a big deal. And one of the things we're talking about is how to be accountable for a New Year's resolution, the great thing about pay yourself first is there's a lot of ways that you can do it automatically. Um, you can do it through, if you are employed, you can do it through your employer. We'll typically have maybe a 401k or a 403b, and you can automatically do it. And you can work your way up, but it's really nice when you have that deduct, auto-deduct. You don't even think about it after a while. And then the really boring one under this topic is setting a budget. Mm-hmm. And budgeting has come so far in terms of how much easier it is today than it used to be. And you know, budgeting is one of those things. And I'm a financial advisor, so I should like t- be able to tell you that I'm so good at budgeting. But it is one of the things that I absolutely struggle with because my husband and I, I had my way of doing my budget, and my husband had his way of doing his budget, and we've really never been able to. Um, like mingle them, you know, mm-hmm. and it wasn't really until some of these new apps came out. So there's the Mint app, which if you've never tried it, is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one that's a little more cumbersome, but also accomplishes the same goal, which is called personal finance. And then a lot of institutions are coming out with them. So Baird, for an example, we have this really cool new app called Baird 360, which is a free service for our clients. And you can actually download everything from your mortgage statement to your credit card statement to your um, banking account. And that's so helpful for us as advisors. So I can say, I can either say, wow, Sue, you did a great job. You paid off X, you know, kudos. Now let's think about what we want to do and maybe you can start saving a little bit more. Or I might say, well, hey, I just noticed that you know, you have a lot more on your credit card or you got this home equity line, like what's going on? And again, going back to like how do we keep a New Year's resolution all year, <clears throat> it's by setting some measure of accountability. And what these apps do is you just download your information and they'll say, this is what you spent. There's no, you don't have to come up with a spreadsheet. You don't have to do anything crazy. All the data is there for you. And I think that's a really easy way. Um, And then the last thing under save more and spend less, I would say, is building an emergency fund. Um, I don't know how I can stress how important having an emergency fund is. Because, I mean, I don't know about the two of you, but I feel like everyone has had some kind of major financial emergency, whether it's something simple like you you need a new heater or it's something very serious like, I don't know, you you, you get in a car accident or you need 
to pay for medical bills or something like that. Mm -hmm. But having an emergency fund, like I have a client who, um, gosh, it was so, you know, it was just such a bad timing, but she ended up having to take out these two really uh, putting some purchases that she had to make right around the time she got laid off um, on a credit card with like a 27% rate. You know, and so that is just will take forever and so much money to pay off. So, I mean, I could go on and on, but those are the first couple that I think that are really important. Yeah, well, I agree that the emergency fund, I think, allows you that peace of mind. If you know that you have that there, if you have that peace of mind, you'll make better decisions overall, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, very, absolutely. very important. And I think we need young people need to know that as early as possible so that they just do that by um, you know, by habit. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's tough when you've got an emergency fund there and it starts getting, you know, a little higher and higher. You might want to spend a little bit of it, but um, it, 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 it is something that is so important to have. Yeah. Well, those, those are all good tips. Spend, you know, save more, spend less, uh, pay down your debt and organize. And there are all these apps today, I think. Um, just a quick question before we let you go. The app, the Baird 360, don't you have to input information in order to get the information back? Mm-hmm. Or is it tied yep, to, tied to cards? Yeah, all of the apps, you actually have to upload your information, and they all seem fairly secure. But, mm-hmm. like, one of the things, one of the New Year's resolutions um, that I had was that you, you, you may, when the New Year starts, you may want to figure out um, if a credit monitoring service is the right thing for you. Um, I know that at Baird, we've contracted with a company called InfoArmor, and we offer that service to our clients, and it's been very good because we had a representative from InfoArmor come in and talk to us about these different credit monitoring companies, um, and we had a bit, and then and then after that we had a Baird person come in and say, here's the process that we made InfoArmor go through before we would allow them to be offered to our clients. And it was very eye-opening because there's a lot of credit credit monitoring services that you hear about, and we probably all have heard the names I'm thinking of, and many of them have had issues in the past. Mm. And so when you're thinking about credit monitoring or when you're trying to take that leap of faith with some of these apps, you just want to make sure that you're choosing something that's reputable and doing your homework to make sure that you're going with the right company that has all the right protections yep. for you. Right, right. Great advice, uh, Kristen, as always. I think at the end of the day, it's about accountability, and there's all different ways to hold ourselves accountable today. We're not, mm-hmm. at, we're not doing it on our yep. own. Um, thank you so much for joining us, and, and we're looking forward to hearing what you have to share next month. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. Have a great day. Uh, Bye-bye. Bye. So now I'm going to introduce my very special guest this afternoon. Again, her name is Kelly Hodge, and Kelly served as the 25th District Attorney of Philadelphia just very recently, um, was the first African-American woman to do so, and shortly will be of counsel um, back with Elliot Greenleaf. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susan. It's a pleasure to be here. It's it's really wonderful to have you here today, and I would like to start off um, getting a little bit of insight into the young 
Kelly Hodge and and what your life was uh, like growing up here just outside of Philadelphia. I understand you were um, born and raised in Horsham. Or, that is or born in Abington, I should say, and raised in Horsham. Yes. Uh, and I happened to attend uh, a high school where my daughter went, Mount St. Joseph Academy. Um, just talk for a little bit about those early years and, and what your family life was like that helped to shape who you are today. Um, probably a typical family. Uh, uh, growing up, um, I grew up in, and lived in Roslyn um, when I was very young um, until about age eight or so. And then my parents uh, moved to Horsham, um, which is where they still live today. And so um, I, you know, went to the local uh, public school for early, early years. Like I, I want to say maybe kindergarten through first grade. And then I went to my local parochial school. And then in fourth grade, um, went to Angela Sumpta Academy, which is in Wincote. And I have an older brother and an older sister. Um, and my sister at the time, I think, had just graduated from high school and was in college. Um, my brother was in high school across the street from where I was going for elementary school. And we just kind of had, you know, the typical makeup. My mom and my dad, you know, both worked um, outside the home and worked very hard. And provided opportunities for, for both my brother, my sister, and I. Um, we all are first-generation uh, children, um, so we were the first ones to go to college. Mm -hmm. um, in our families, my parents um, didn't have the opportunity uh, to go into complete college. My dad went into the service. Uh, my mom began working. And so we just had, I would say, um, a fairly typical upbringing and were provided with a lot of opportunities. We traveled. We went to Disney. Um, and I remember those family trips and had extended family and cousins and things like that that would go with us. Um, my mom worked for Amtrak when I was growing up, so that made the Disney vacations um, a, a lot easier oh, uh, nice. to take the train down and to do that. And so we made it into kind of a big family kumbaya type moment. And so I can remember those images very vividly. And, and so I definitely got to know the world um, beyond just Philadelphia or just outside of Philadelphia, which I give a lot of credit to my parents for that. Um, my first play I went to, I can remember going to see Annie down at the Walnut oh, Street Theater, and I too. think I was seven. Um, yeah. And that probably introduced me to a love of theater and arts and performing. So I loved to sing when I was growing up. Um, I remember my first Broadway show was Dreamgirls up in New York. Oh, wow. um, and seeing, you know, Jennifer Holliday and Shirley Ralph and all these women that I looked at and admired and was like, wow, can I be like, you know, them one day? Yeah. Um, and so that piece of, of entertaining others and making people happy or music making people happy um, made, you know, inspired me to kind of want to hopefully, you know, be in a space where I could do something that would hopefully bring people a level of joy. And put, um, you, put yourself out there. Correct. Yeah. So you were the baby in the family, um, but you're very driven, very, very driven. And we'll talk about all the things you're involved in. Um, did mom and dad put in a, a, a large emphasis on education? Yes, they did. Okay. Um, I, was, I used to joke that I think the educational um, opportunities that my brother or sister and I were given got more restrictive and more stringent with each one of us. So my sister went to to public school throughout the entirety of her life. My brother went to public and then Catholic for high school, and then I went to public, private Catholic by the time it got to me. So it, it got a little bit more, um, I would say, uh, intense in terms of setting an environment and, and what um, we were exposed to academically in terms of 
the challenges that we were each given. And I think that it was just the nature of what fit for us. Um, I think that the setting that I was was in and what I was provided academically, my parents didn't have a personal um, emphasis on you need to get good grades, but I think that I wanted to inherently do well. Um, and I think we all wanted to do well. And so we would kind of rise to the occasion. And so, yes, they knew how I was doing academically. They followed along with my grades and, and knew where I was. And they definitely were huge advocates going up to the school for each one of us. If any, you know, teacher or administrator somehow indicated that there was something that they felt was problematic, but that we, myself, my brother and my sister said, we, we don't see that as an issue or we want to be challenged more about something. And I remember doing that um, at the Mount and I remember doing that at Angela saying, I, I, I think I need to be in this uh, higher level course and they're not giving me the opportunity to do that. And my mom would march up there and, and hmm. advocate or if she felt like we were being slighted in some way. And I think with each of us at some point in our academic lives felt like we were being slighted or restricted um, in some way from having access to something greater than what the school thought we were able to achieve, but we knew we were able to achieve. And my, my parents would advocate for that. Outside of that, they kind of left us to chart our own course, at least for me, to chart my own course. So I was very much driven um, by my own personal need to do well and to hopefully, um, probably my peers, and wanting to also keep up with my peers. Mm -hmm. um, and they were um, you know, extremely um, driven as well. And so I would kind of want to keep up with them. But I think it was just a personal barometer um, for me as okay. to, as to how I did way. in school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, we mentioned Mount St. Joe Academy, and it is an all-girls um, school, private school. And I think it's there's definitely a different culture and environment there than um, a public or parochial. Tell me how this those years... Um, let me ask it a different way. What, what do you think was the greatest impact of having an opportunity to be in that kind of environment with all of those girls, which I think at times can be competitive, right? Um, what what was the greatest impact for you from um, those years? It's, it's funny because at the time that I'm in or was in that moment, I don't think I appreciated it then. I have a greater appreciation now, having been very far removed from it many years later. Um, that I really feel like that time of being a student at the Mount um, greatly shaped where I would go in my life and how I would um, become the person I am in terms of things that are important to me. Um, caring, empathetic, um, non-judgmental, trying to advocate for people who um, may not have a voice or people would often overlook or marginalize. Um, I think a lot of that came through my education at the Mount. It came through other things as well, obviously, how I was raised and what my parents taught me. But I do think that the Mount was integral in that. And I, I believe that the all-girl setting, um, universally, not just at the Mount, but other all-girls institutions, um, that setting kind of fosters a sense of um, inherent um, self-awareness, um, a boost in your ability to really be focused on pushing one another in hopefully a positive way. So while it's competitive, it's not um, deconstructive. It's not something where you're looking to tear each other down. It's something where you're looking to elevate one another up. Um, it does not mean that you're not dealing with the, the things that you deal with as a teenage girl. Mm -hmm. um, we dealt with those things, but mm -hmm. I often would use the, the um, description of my time at the Mount as being one where I could go to school 
I would never, I would only go to the restroom when I had to go to the restroom, but it wasn't to primp or prod myself in hoping that somebody would like how I look today. That's um, right. That, yeah. because I, d I didn't have that as a focus mm. um, at all. It was about, you know, what I could learn from my teacher and then what we could learn from each other and how we could kind of promote or motivate one another to do better. Um, that's what I took away from it and had a greater appreciation later. And so when I went to college, which was in a much larger setting as opposed to where I was in high school, um, I at least felt that level of self-assurance that I had a voice. If I wanted my voice to be heard, I felt secure enough in projecting my voice. Mm -hmm. And they also, you know, I looked big picture. I looked at how the world was bigger than just the, the world I was in at the Mount, the, the global world of, of people from all different backgrounds and, 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 and you know, regions of just not only the country but of the globe and, and just really trying to take all that in and appreciating what people bring to the table. Um, the Mount is rooted in faith. Um, I think that's key. Um, their motto, you know, is extremely clear and direct and, and they really see that women are, are the founders of the future. Um, it says on the education of women largely depends the future of society. I and I that think model. that is critical yeah. and key. Yeah. Um, I think that even now looking at it, what the Mount puts out in terms of its, of its mission and values and while it is spiritually centered, it is a place where they still continue to want young girls to find themselves, to know themselves, to be challenged within themselves and by one another um, in order for them to go in better shape society as a whole mm -hmm. in whatever right. capacity right. that to they choose. To make a difference. Correct. That's and so I lead. think you walk out yeah. of there yeah. feeling that, and I can say fairly securely, you know, extremely securely to this day, this is how they are because I'm on the board there. And so I know what it is. They still, just like any institution, need to grow. Um, and need to adapt to what's going on mm -hmm. currently. Mm -hmm. um, and so because of that, you're always looking to expand the scope of knowledge and teaching and instruction um, and trying to push the envelope with them and with other institutions to kind of think and see things differently mm -hmm. so that they stay current. That's right. That you know, they stay that's right. I think that's so important that you, you have to be able to move with the times. Things evolve and change. You can't stay in the past you can't so remain this, stagnant uh, no. it's really really important and I, I would imagine that's you know being on the board gives you an opportunity to you know share that belief it does yeah but you're working within the structure of a board my viewpoint I bring a perspective I bring my experience I bring my what I feel and experience then and over my career what I feel I can bring now to hopefully help that environment grow and better itself I'm one voice amongst you know the 20-some the people that are around the table. And so um, I'm a huge proponent of diversity. I'm a huge proponent of not just diversity in terms of ethnic diversity, but also diversity of viewpoints, diversity in terms of regions or geographic areas, mm. socioeconomic status, and bringing that in and kind of pushing that issue um, for the Mount and for many other institutions and places because I, I believe that, like you said, remaining stagnant is is really um, unacceptable. Um, it, it's something that when you do that and you're not growing, um, you're in essence dying. And so you need to go ahead and do things that are going to promote continued growth and viability if you really want to go ahead and remain kind of relevant 
um, in what it is that you say mm -hmm. you are about. Mm -hmm. if, what, if, if, if your mission or your whatever it is, your motto in life um, that drives you is going to remain relevant, you have to be willing to continue to accept and invite in change and conversation and continue to grow. And that means a difference of ideas and mm -hmm. a difference of perspectives and a difference of ethnicities and backgrounds um, because no one person has it all. Yeah, and not only that, it's so much more interesting, mm -hmm. isn't it? Right to 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 receive other viewpoints and absolutely, you know, you know, bring it all together, and roll it up, and then come out with a you know really good idea or result. Um, tell me, so we you went to UVA? I did. Um, when did you decide you were going to be an attorney? Was that in high school or when you were in college? I think I probably decided. Probably, and tell me why. Um, I probably decided <clears throat> in high school. Um, I think that I was intrigued probably by, you know, shows on TV. Um, in addition, my dad, it might have been a little bit before high school, actually. Um, my father was part of an organization in Montgomery County called the Optimist Club, and they would have law day at Montgomery County Courthouse. And I remember that he would take myself um, and about six or seven other students that were selected um, from my elementary class. So I think we went in maybe seventh and eighth grade to Law Day at the court building. And I, I have pictures of myself and my classmates standing on the bench of a judge's courtroom um, and, you know, just really being intrigued by seeing the courtroom and seeing people who were attorneys and judges and things like that. So that was like my first introduction. And I think from that, going into high school, um, I went back and looked at my yearbook a few years ago or at some point in time in the past and somebody wrote like you know you're going to you're going to be like Oprah um you're going to go out there and you're going to be a person that's going to you know uh, raise the question and force the issue so that that thing of advocacy and of talking and of kind of debating the issues that was always probably a, a, a critical part um of me and so I think that that's where the law came into play for me um fairness um like again, helping people and kind of making sure that people that you may walk by and ignore are not ignored mm -hmm. um, and that people see them and recognize that they have value and worth and that they need to be heard and recognized. Um, that's probably what spurred me into going into law. So when I went to UVA, I knew then that I was going to focus my efforts um, to studying and, and kind of building myself around working in the law or eventually going to law school. I didn't know I would be doing the work that I ended up doing in terms of criminal justice. I thought maybe I would do something more on a policy basis on a global level, either in international affairs or something like that. But mm -hmm. I, I knew that I was going to be a lawyer. Do you like debating? I do. Yeah. I, debating and, and in a more relaxed way, just um, calling it conversation or yeah. discussing issues. Yeah. But yeah, I do. Um, I think that it's... Um, it's cathartic. It's necessary. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes you need to be silent, and there's power in silence. But oftentimes, if there's something that's that's tugging at you, um, or, or gnawing at you, um, having that conversation with someone like-minded or somebody not like-minded um, can really help synthesize or, or 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 illuminate what it is that's going on that you've been thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, Figuring out if you're off base, or am I am I on point with this, or am I off base? Um, you but know. you have to be open minded, right, Correct. to do that. To think maybe you know maybe I Correct. don't. Correct, because some the people don't want to hear it. Um, That's right. I'm, 
you know, I get a lot of it from from dear friends that are close to me. I, my husband, being my best friend, will definitely tell me the real deal, um, and I need it from yeah. him. And he doesn't work in the world that I work in. He doesn't practice law, and that's I think a very healthy, helpful thing for me to have him, who knows me so well. We met in college, and for me to be able to kind of throw something out there and and to know that he will give me back. Um, you know, the pros, the cons, the goods, the bads, and it's all for the betterment of me. Yeah. So that's really critical. Yeah, that's wonderful that you have that partner, you know, to support you like that. Um, so one of the big, you know, um, milestones in your life is, as I mentioned at the top of the show, to be appointed the, the district attorney in Philadelphia, first African-American woman. We love firsts for women, you know, around I mean, here and on this show. It's just, it's, it's always refreshing and it's, it's one more step closer to where we want to be. Um, and I thought about, you know, I was doing my homework and reading all about you and the work that you do. And, and this one, um, line about the fact that you were overseeing 1.5 million residents here in Philadelphia. That's a big number and over 600 personnel. And I thought, my gosh, that would, (laughs) that would scare the heck out of me going into a role, you know, with um, that much responsibility. And the question I have for you is, my gosh, what is a typical day like doing that? Um, what in the world happens to you, you know, from morning till it's time to close the door in the office when you're overseeing those kinds of numbers and managing that amount of people? Well, yes, I probably didn't sit down and crunch the numbers in that way before I went ahead and submitted (laughs) my application. Um, But I I will say, even if I did, I don't know if I'd really would have, I maybe would have a moment of a second thought, but, but it wouldn't have dissuaded me from doing what I was doing or wanted to do. Um, I I had the fortunate um, opportunity to have worked in the office previously, so I had a, a definitely a very good idea of at least in large part um, how the office worked in terms of the trial work and things like that. So, you know, the the people that were represented in, by the district attorney's office in this city and and those people that we you know advocated for every day um, in this city and worked alongside law enforcement, um, you know, other city agencies and community agencies, I knew going in that that network of support and relationships was there. Mm -hmm. And that made um, the numbers that you just shared, which sound extremely, can sound extremely intimidating, much less intimidating. Mm. Um, My typical day was um, going into the office, um, you know, 8 o'clock, 8.30 in the morning, um, and kind of really getting apprised of what may have happened um, overnight, if anything had happened, you know, looking at either news or getting updates on things. I usually had meetings that were generally scheduled out. Um, and so those things in terms of meetings being scheduled were, were already predetermined. There obviously may have been things that could have happened um, within the past, you know, 12 to 24 hours that required immediate attention that were unexpected. And so it was kind of like you had the expected kind of um, regularly structured things that I would have on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. And then I had those X factor things, those unstructured, unexpected, impromptu, urgent things. Um, The one thing, as you said, when I closed my door in the evening and went home, whatever time that was, I was never off. Um, It was never a, a, you're, 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 you're no longer, you know, working as the district attorney 
you're on as a district attorney 24 seven. And so oftentimes on weekends, oftentimes after quote unquote normal business hours that people may traditionally have in their mind as holding, um, that didn't, that wasn't applicable to me. So I was going to places in the evening to meet and speak with people. Um, I say you meet people where you find them, you meet them in their space, whatever is necessary in order to go ahead and to do the work that was required of the office and the work that was required or is required of the office is to be um, the voice for victims and to be a zealous advocate on behalf of the citizens of the city. And so that never shuts off, not with 1.5 million, not with um, 600 um, staff and personnel yeah. that are relying on you to lead. Yeah. And so that's the way I approached um, the job. And uh, and I appreciated every minute of it and, in, and enjoyed um, every minute of the day that I had a chance to walk into the office, to go into the office that I had, to take a moment to, to look out um, over the city and take in the fact that all that is here in Philadelphia um, at that point in time was something that I had the responsibility to ensure the safety of those people that walk the streets um, and to facilitate law enforcement who was doing it every day, day in and day out as well. Um, and to make sure that people were heard when they were victimized. Mm. And so that was was generally the, the how I thought about my day. Um, I would meet with certain people on my staff um, on a regular basis um, and would have those meetings as, as set times within my schedule um, so that I made sure that I would carve out those important moments, um, even if there was something to discuss or maybe there wasn't something critically uh, to discuss. But I wanted to make sure that those times were there um, just in case. Yeah. So kind of being prepared. Yeah. And the ability to pivot. Right. Very much so. Yeah. There was a lot of that. Yes. Um, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about how you manage um, what you see um, as a litigator and in the role um, of District Attorney of Philadelphia, how you manage that emotionally. We'll be right back. This is Kristen Hillsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more, all available at womentowatch.net and our own website, FoleyHillsleyGroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at FoleyHillsleyGroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, member SIPC. Log on to FoleyHillsleyGroup.com to learn more. That's F-O-L-E-Y-H-I-L-L-S-L-E-Y-Group.com. Or call 610-238-6636. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. 
In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by Kelly Hodge. Uh, Kelly has served as the 25th District Attorney of Philadelphia recently and um, will be of counsel with Elliot Greenleaf shortly. She's kind of in between roles. And um, before the break, we were talking about, um, you know, really what a typical day was in that position. And I just, you know, had visions of the overwhelm, not only the day-to-day meetings, but as you mentioned, things can happen and they do, Correct. right, they on do. a daily basis. And, um, you know, you were a litigator for um, Elliot Greenleaf, and I know that you see some tough stuff and you hear, you know, you're seeing uh, the worst of the worst in a city that has a lot of wonderful and good. And... Um, I wonder about people who are in those roles. We're so grateful, number one, to have people like you. How do you manage to remain hopeful um, when you see that side of humanity, I'll say? Um, Because I – thank you for the question because it was greatly formed. Um, When you see, as you would say, the worst of the worst and how do you stay hopeful in that, there's always – in my opinion, there's the best of the best that comes through the worst of the worst. There's there's a yin and a yang, and 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 you see that. And so I I choose to often take a moment that may seem like the worst of the worst, and try to go ahead and find the moment within that that may be being overshadowed, and and look for the best of the best, and try to exploit and exaggerate that, and then mm. build off of that, and take the person who's in the lowest of low, and let them know that even if it's not in that exact moment that hopefully over the passage of time, it will get better because it, it will get better. Um, and having somebody kind of believe in that and subscribe to that. I also don't try to preach to people and kind of assume that I know where they're coming from and what their emotions are and what they feel. I believe it's really important to listen um, more than you speak, um, even though I do talk quite a bit. <laughs> um, but but I but I try to go ahead and in and, and dealing with the work I've dealt with over the years, either as a prosecutor or in litigation with cases at Ellie Greenleaf or when I was a public defender at age 24 in Richmond, Virginia, having never stepped into a jail in my life, and now my life was sitting in jails every single day across from people who had experienced a great deal of hardship um, and had um, obviously hit a point in their life that placed them there in a secured environment where they were not free to move about for whatever the reason was. trying not to be judgmental of them and even taking that moment and saying, okay, this either was alleged to have happened or you were telling me this did happen and you're telling me the why and not judging that moment, um, not judging that individual based upon that moment of recognizing that there's more layers to the person that I needed to figure out if I was going to be a good advocate for them mm-hmm. um, and taking that and transitioning it through whatever I do in my life and have done. And so I kind of categorize myself as an optimist. I'm a glass half full type person. I tend to look at the world that way, but I'm also a realist. So I'm an optimistic realist. That's um, a good combination. And I tend to um, 
want to know the real. I want to know the real deal. I want to know the bottom line. Um, I, and I often kind of use the phrase of, you know, what's the end game here? What are we looking to do? And then looking at what either laws or, or rules or parameters am I um, working within in order to go ahead and try to achieve whatever the goal is, whatever the, the end game is, and and trying to figure out the most constructive way possible to get there. Mm. Um, I definitely like to move things forward. I definitely like to get things done. Um, I, I, I While the conversation is necessary to, to get there, to do it and to do it well, um, I don't believe in having conversation for conversation's sake. Um, I think that conversation with a purpose and and so I want to hear realistically what is the information that I need to know or what do I need to know during this discussion um, in order to go ahead and move the ball forward um, that doesn't mean I don't like to hang out lay back cut up do whatever to go ahead and in the social settings yeah I'm not looking at an end game goal on that <laughs> but but I'm talking about more in the professional realm yes, when yes. I'm speaking about yeah. those things that leads me right into my next question because as um, outsiders, I'll say, you know, we see gridlock a lot when it comes to politics and um, we're, gosh, we're seeing it right now. Yes, we are. And so my question for you is, and you said, I don't, you know, I want to, um, you want to get things done. So what's your strategy, I'll say, when you are in a room full of people on multiple, multiple sides of an issue? Um, what is your strategy for getting people to come together and, and create resolution and not just go back and forth? Yeah, um, when you're trying to coalesce and, 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 and somehow effectively bring about collaboration, it's, it's hard to get people to do that. Mm -hmm. um, it is critical in leadership to be able it to is. know how to do that. It is. Um, when I spoke a little while ago about sometimes there's power in saying nothing, um, you need to know when to to lean in and when to pull back. There was a judge that I used to appear of appear in front of in Richmond, Virginia. Um, he used to say, "I hear Kenny Rogers singing," and I was like, "I don't I don't know what Kenny Rogers is singing. Can you please tell me?" And he was like, "Got to know when to hold him, know when to fold him." And I'm like, "All right, I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of going there with you, but can you give me a little bit more?" Um, and what he meant was, in terms of that time and that moment when I was making an argument on a case or making an argument on behalf of my client, you know, there's a certain time where you need to stop, when you need to know when to pull back, when you need to know when to, to listen, when maybe somebody else may be doing the work for you or can do it better than you. And so it's respecting people's strengths and weaknesses. So as you said, when you have gridlock, how can you best keep moving the ball forward? You know, you're one person, you're, 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 you're one, you know, person on the wheel that you know that's trying to go ahead and get the wheel to go and to turn into your one spoke and and if everybody else isn't willing to go ahead and move it forward it's not going to go um, so you try to get people to pinpoint those things that you can have a common ground understanding on okay what in this can we agree to um, if it's a multifaceted approach or, or something that you're doing on an issue um, or what is our end game what's our goal here um, and, and then what are the things that you are absolutely unequivocally not gonna bend on, and can you at least hear one another out as to why we should and must address that issue, that we can't leave it laying dormant. Um, but it takes a commitment to wanting to actually reach the goal. It takes a commitment by the team, it's, you know, like a relay race, like you all are gonna go ahead and you wanna go ahead and move the needle forward. If you don't wanna get to that, to that goal line, um, 
you're just going to keep churning your wheels, churning your wheels. It's like spinning your wheels in mud, and you're never going to go anywhere. Um, and and again, like I said, I don't believe or enjoy exerting effort um, for effort's sake when it's not going to yield um, hopefully a positive result. It may yield a negative result, but at least I tried, um, right. and that is okay. Right. Um, but you gotta you gotta try. Um, and I think that right now, as you say, with the gridlock that's going on, we all are expecting to see the effort of trying by all individuals in order to go ahead and move the needle forward for the sake of the greater good. Um, if that's not happening, um, then you have to question and wonder, you know, who is that individual or individuals, who are they really advocating for? Is it for themselves mm -hmm. or is it really for someone else? Yeah. Right. Because no one was put in that position. I was not put in the position of district attorney to be an advocate for Kelly Hodge. <laughs> I was put in the position of district attorney to be an advocate for the citizens of Philadelphia. Hmm. It's not about me. And it's not about my personal feelings about one issue or another. It's about what do the citizens of Philadelphia and what do the laws of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania say that I must do. Yeah. I think sometimes people start out with very good intentions when it comes to serving and then you get a certain level of power and all of a sudden it, it is becoming about you, right? I'm, I'm sure you see that. Correct. Yeah. I, I say that, you know, you have to be very wary of um, people entering your, your, your space, your, your secure space of those integral friends and family that you have relied on, who have been with you throughout your life, who know you best, um, and having people who are external to that, enter into that space and hope to guide you mm. and hope to offer. And it doesn't mean that you dispel what they offer to you, but you just have to take it and then weigh it amongst the other guidance that you get and advisement that you get from others in your life and kind of figure out then what fits you and what's mm. and what's best for you. Um, you know, a lot of people have a lot of good intentions, as you say, and it, it doesn't necessarily lead them to making the right decision or executing the right result. I don't believe that anybody necessarily wakes up on a daily basis and says, today I'm gonna go out and do something to hurt someone or I'm gonna go out and do something to, 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 to you know, make someone feel bad about themselves. That's the optimism in me, that's the optimist in me. I, I hope that's not the case. Yeah. But do people go out and do things that hurt another individual or that are harmful to someone? Yes, that does happen. Um, and, you know, I often feel that we need to take time to go ahead and to step back um, and take those moments to kind of, you know, be self-aware and recognize what our role is and how we either contribute to situations in order to figure out how we can not repeat past mistakes mm -hmm. and hopefully kind of move things in a more positive direction. Um, one of the other um, opportunities you had was at UVA um, working to uh, develop and implement policies there around Title IX. Correct. And, you know, this is a show about women and for women, so I'd love for you to talk about that for a few minutes. What was your hope <laughs> in a result? In survival. Doing that. <laughs> Just surviving. Besides survival. Yeah. No, um, it was, yeah. uh, in all honesty, I, I really um, – felt that at the time that I was asked by the university to serve as their first independent Title IX coordinator, it was in 2015, and it was just after um, Rolling Stone had uh, a very well-known piece of writing that was published about 
uh, sexual assault on college campuses. And that writing um, spurred a national conversation. Mm -hmm. And I believe that that national conversation is continuing to go on. In a big um, way. In a big it's, way. Yeah, in a big um, way. And I do believe that um, from that, the university, which was highlighted in this particular piece, um, basically took or was the spotlight for that subject matter. And then it alerted probably every other institution of higher learning and elementary and secondary education that they need to basically get their stuff in order. Um, that the U.S. Department of Education was going to take a critical look at things and that they were going to assess how institutions of, of higher learning and educational settings were dealing with sex assault and sex harassment and gender-based harassment and intimate partner violence and any of those things that were limiting um, you know, people based on sex or gender from excelling and achieving in an educational setting. And so while people oftentimes thought of Title IX as athletics and associated it with athletics, it clearly at that point in time was seen as, and now is very much well known as, much broader than that, mm -hmm. which it always was. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I went down to the University of Virginia, went down to Charlottesville, they were still, I would say, recovering from what had been a very tumultuous time. Um, they, they were trying to still, um, and, and were, you know, comprehensively addressing um, what those subject matters brought out from um, sexual assault and sexual harassment and looking critically internally within the institution to say, how can we do it better? I happen to be um, the fortunate beneficiary of being in a space where I could go and return to Charlottesville having attended there um, and, and work closely with the president of the university, Teresa Sullivan, and work closely with others within the institution and really try to bring an awareness and a level of comfort um, for those people who have been silent victims um, and for those people who had always felt like there wasn't a space to have this issue addressed in an academic setting and to go ahead and to educate everyone around the board administrators, executive level, academics, athletes, coaches, 11 schools um, were, were those that I covered, the medical school, the business school. And, and, and so it's a, it's a comprehensive level of awareness, instruction, response, training, um, technical support, um, collaborative interface with the state as well as with the federal levels to try to make sure that we were getting it right. And, uh, and that's still a living, breathing, working process. It is. Because we had the exemplary model for the country, we crafted the exemplary model for the country, but even within that, each academic setting and each space has to craft something that fits in their realm because their students, the students that are in school in California are different than the students that are in school in Oregon that are different in, than the students in Virginia that are different than the students that are here in Philadelphia. And you have to adapt what's going to best suit your student population in order to make sure that they feel safe and comfortable where they are. Um, my role was, was also different from being a prosecutor or a public defender because I was the Title IX coordinator. I was neutral. I had to make sure that the process and procedure was followed. So while victims were reporting and bringing things to the attention of myself in order for a response, I also had those that were accused that I also had to make sure 
had the equity and fairness built within mm-hmm. their realms so that they were given the fair opportunity to go ahead and you know articulate what happened articulate it without the fear of of you know um being summarily disbelieved just because they are accused um that there's a, a, a at this point it is just an accusation and we need to know what happened and we're looking to find out what happened and so and making sure that mental health wise um that everyone was being treated and handled and supported okay because that other student who was accused is a student of that university as well if it was in fact a student or if it was an academic but that person is a part of the fabric of the setting and so the policy covers everyone and so you cannot discriminate on who it is that you are looking to go ahead and provide support you provide support you do the investigation and then you make sure that there is a concrete outcome um, that hopefully has the situation being remedied so it does not happen again it was it's complicated yeah it is um, complicated I, you know i i want to ask you this question because you used the word training mm-hmm. and and i'm very often conflicted about that part of uh, the whole issue for instance you know uh, companies and corporations now are training their employees around harassment and discrimination and, and prejudice and i often think to myself can you train someone to be a good person or is that you know you're born that way it's in your dna and and you're someone that would innately never go to such an extreme um, against another human being so uh, tell me your thoughts around that the training of of behavior of people around sexual harassment in the workplace how does one do that um i think it's necessary i think that you know whether or not you're training someone to be a good person or not a good person um i won't i won't necessarily get in the debate about that specifically i will say that the training is critical so that people are aware of what is or is not acceptable socially culturally what are the norms that are or not acceptable and that there are consequences to unacceptable behavior i think this is a discussion about norms and normalcy and how certain people may think growing up in a certain region of the world or a certain region within this country that it's okay to act like this or to treat somebody else like that because that's all they know because that's what their setting was like that's what their kind of institution or world is like and they don't know anything other than that and so i think the training is critical because what they may have been taught doesn't necessarily quote unquote make them a bad person if in their space that was their norm mm. it's more we about have cultures. to let them know correct yes, that yes. this is what is acceptable within this community and mm-hmm. this society so let me teach you because if i don't teach you and train you then i have a lower level of expectation that you will be able to adapt yourself in order to go ahead and comply and work within the norms that are expected in a business realm in a school realm whatever it is and that requires a conversation so i think training is critical i think that um if i were to go to somewhere in the world um i don't know just a, another country and 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 visit and not know the norms and the cultural norms of that community and I was never told 
what they are and how the relationship is within a professional setting or, or a social setting. And I did something and they're like, we don't do that here. And I didn't know that and I was, I was disrespectful mm-hmm. um, yep. in not doing that. If yep. I didn't shroud myself when I went over to a Middle Eastern region and I didn't know that that was something that I should do um, out of either respect or it's a cultural norm, um, you know, how can I be held to the level of accountability that I should be held by not adopting or being aware of that norm. So I think we have a duty to make people aware. Mm -hmm. Um, And then once they are aware, then we have the expectation that they're going to go ahead and comport their behavior accordingly. And and we're all on the same page. Yeah. Here's the here's the here's the playbook of, of life and society and what we expect and this is this is how things should be in this setting. If you have a business setting or a corporate setting or whatever setting and they say it's okay to do whatever it is that is, you know, misogynistic, despicable, abhorrent behavior, <laughs> then somebody needs to go ahead and address that um, beyond that mm. setting. But if that's you know, that's something that, that we need to talk about and to teach about and to learn about because what we're learning now, what we're seeing now um, with all the conversation that is going on in the world, is that there have been spaces where things have happened um, that people felt like, well, this is just the norm for this setting, so we kind of have to let it go. Mm. And we as a society are saying, that's unacceptable. Yeah. And and so we, we can't let it go, and we're not going to let it go anymore. And mm. so that's where the Time's Up Me Too movement that was born many, many years ago is now finally gaining the level of attention that it so rightly deserves mm. because it's about letting people know that this is unacceptable and these entities have a responsibility to make sure people are trained and aware as to you're going to be held accountable based upon it not being acceptable. Yeah, I think it's tremendous because it we are now beyond the awareness and the conversations. We're seeing action. Correct. Right? Isn't it, It's so exciting to me that that is, is the result of all this awful, you know, uh, the negative and uh, the stories and everything that's going on that it has come out, I think we really are going to s- actionable things are going to take place because of it. So it is positive. Um, let, we're at the end of the show. Oh. And, oh, wasn't that quick? What that? Yeah. Where, where did the time go? You want to stay and do another hour? <laughs> <laughs> it was so great to have you, Kelly. Thank I you appreciate it. I know how busy you are, and I really appreciate you sharing your story. I appreciate the opportunity, thank you so Susan. Much. Thank you very much as well. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Uh, Please go to our website for all things related to the show at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T, and have a great week.